Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 47 of the Filmed Live Musicals podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Lyons, and my guest today is the CEO of Stellar and author of the brilliant new book, Beyond the Back Row, The Breakthrough Potential of Digital Live Entertainment and Arts, which explains the why, how, and what of online events. Welcome, Jim. Hi, Louisa. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. I'm so glad that we can finally chat. We met a little while ago now, and I'm very excited that we're finally sitting down to talk. Definitely, definitely. So to start us off with, what made you fall in love with theater? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I, I've told the story before of being about four, probably. And it, it, I mean, it's theater, I guess. It was some kind of uh, event where you go down to the Coliseum, the, like the local you know, auditorium or whatever, and they had all the life-size characters of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and all the other Disney characters showed up. And I remember thinking, like, I can't believe I'm in the same room with, like, you know, sleepy and, and sneezy and all these guys. And, I, you know, I, I still have a distinct memory of like the dark room and the st- and the stage and the characters. And, you know, it just, it was just instantly sort of magical for me. Now, having said that, you know, I've, I've discovered theater gradually over a long, long time because I grew up in a place where there wasn't a lot of theater to go to or anything like that. And when I was in college, I, w- I went to plays all the time because they're just everywhere in a college campus. And I just thought it was so much fun. And then, by starting Gold Star, which many of the people who listen to you will know, we just suddenly had access. That was part of our whole thing was was all about getting people to go out and see all these shows. So I just started going 20 years ago. I just started going and seeing stuff all the time because there it was on my on my own website. So, yeah. Was there something when you were watching those Disney characters for the first time? Did you think that's what I want to do or I want to be a part of that? No. You know, it wasn't. <laughs> It, it wasn't, it's funny because I was never a performer or, or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like in my, I think my, my interest in theater was sort of lurking, you know, under this, under the surface for a long time. I always enjoyed it. And what's interesting is I came into the gold star business really from the point of view of e-commerce. I, I was one of the, I was very, very early in the e-commerce industry in the 97 timeframe, 1997. So very early Worked with Amazon when they were still, nobody knew who Amazon was as one of our partners. And and then we started Gold Star in 2002, really because we thought like, oh, we know about e-commerce and not many people do. And boy, there's really an opportunity in, in terms of getting people out to shows more, you know, and that was really it. So we didn't, I mean, I came into the business knowing no one, really not really knowing the business, but knowing the e-commerce part of it, which was kind of a contribution that we made, you know, because Nobody in the in the industry had those sort of skills at the time. And so it, it made a big difference. Yeah, you bought tickets by calling the theater or <laughs> going in person to the theater. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's funny when you see a poster for a concert or a, or a theater production from before a certain point, and it's just a phone number on there. Like, oh, this is before about 2000. You know, this is from yeah. just before. In the in the olden days. <laughs> right. The before times. That's right. When you went to college, what did you study? I studied English. So, you know, I was oriented toward literature and that kind of thing in college. But I never I don't know. I never had the urge to be a performer. I don't know why. Oh, I was in a I was in a band. I had a band. 
So I had an urge to be a rock star. That was my main <laughs> That was, As a guitarist was, or a singer or both? B- or both, drums. both, yeah. But I'm a I'm a better singer than a guitar player. I, you know, I I my goal was to be able to play guitar well enough that I could hold a guitar while yeah. I was while I was, while I was playing, you know, <laughs> and not just hold it. You know what I mean? Actually play. And as an English major myself, I understand the circuitous ways that you end up, like where you end up after doing an English degree. I actually think it's great. I think it's a, I think it's a great degree. I, I agree. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I mean, I, I, at least the way that we, when 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 I went through the program, it, the emphasis was on understanding complex written material, which happened to be literature, and then very clearly and concisely explaining something novel about that literature. So we did a ton of writing, you know, mm. and the writing was evaluated by do you have something to say and are you explaining it in a way that a reader is going to get what you're trying to communicate and you can kind of support and articulate your point of view. And so I think those are skills. I've met a lot of people. Actually, there are a lot of people in the um, the ticketing world, for example, Sean Moriarty, who lives here in Pasadena was the CEO of, of Ticketmaster. He is an English. He was an English major in college. My co-founder at Goldstar, Robert Graff, was an English major in college. So I, I think there's really, if, at least if it's taught the way it was taught to me, I think it's really valuable. Couldn't agree more. I, I know I for myself, I not just writing, but analysis and being able to access lots of different points of view and lots of different voices. It's it's so vital. Definitely, definitely, and yeah. and under taught at this point, I would say. Yes. But yeah. English majors of the theater world unite. <laughs> so how did you get from being an English major into working in e-commerce? Well, let's see. My first job out of college was teaching English in Japan. So I went to Japan for two and a half years, which was just fun, fun thing to do. You know, um, a great post-college job. And then I came back to the U.S. and moved to California. And I kind of just looked around uh, and I didn't, I didn't go to e-commerce right away, but I mean, like part of it was, I was just looking around like what's growing, what's, what's the future about, you know, that's why I moved to California because that's where the future generally gets built. And so worked for a cup, worked for a, a high growth restaurant concept for a couple of years, which is really cutting edge and cool. And then left, left there. I was in business school, full-time MBA program when I left there. And I was, it was 1997 and I was like, what is the thing that's coming, you know? And there's this thing called the internet and I think it's going to be big. And, you know, it's really funny because in my, my business school class in 1997, there were, I think there were 60 of us in the, in the group. And there were two people who worked in the internet at that time in my (laughs) class of 60. And I said, like, I want to get into the internet. Like, how do you do it? And they were like, oh yeah, well, here's the community and let me introduce you to a few people and stuff like that. And I bet the number is a lot higher than that today. <laughs> and it was actually it was a lot higher by the time we graduated in 1999. It was a lot higher, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So for, it was a wide open field and it was really, it was one of these things where again, the whole, the whole set of skills around explaining something, understanding something fundamentally from the, from the ground up, it was it was a wide open. I think anytime there's a wide open new field, as long as it doesn't require massive technical knowledge, you know, your skills in being able to to communicate and analyze and think clearly are always going to be useful. So, and that was an, that was that was the dawn of the of the internet as a business. You know, it was in that in that era. 
So what an exciting time to be a part of that. It was and, like the wild west of <laughs> yeah, it really was. tech. Yeah. yeah, it definitely was. And, and, you know, it's funny because there's always things like that. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many things and, and it's funny because we're in one of those now with, with, uh, with, with online events and it feels about the way that it did at the beginning of this, which is that you have a lot of people who just don't see it yet. Mm. I mean, I'm telling you in 1997, I was saying e-commerce is going to be enormous. And a lot of people were like, I don't get it. And I said, well, what part don't you get? You know what I mean? I don't get it. And then, you know, oh, well, people are never going to buy things online. People were convinced that people would never buy clothes online, for example. Yeah. Well, because, because you know, you need to try it on. You need to see how it feels. Now. Now. Yeah, yeah. right. Now, not, not really. So It's so extraordinary. I, I remember when I was young, there was this exhibition at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, and uh-huh. it was called Beyond 2000 and what yeah, the future right. would look like. Yeah. It had like t- um, imaginary touchscreen computers. Like they didn't really exist yet, but they yeah. talked about how one day we would have touchscreen computers in our right. fridge and like we would be able to, you know, order things from the fridge and it would come to our house. But this idea, like how how quickly that happened and that we are holding computers vastly more powerful than that in our pockets every single day yeah. and how, how rapidly that has happened in my own lifetime. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary to be witness to it. You know, it's all, it, that's a good object lesson too, because the whole thing of like your fridge will be the place where you order the milk or whatever that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> and the reason that it didn't happen is because it doesn't really make any sense if you have a phone, right? If you have a mobile device, the way we understand them, it's it's really interesting to think about like of all the things that people thought or dreamed about the future. There, nobody nobody envisioned a smartphone until it took a form, you know, that people could see, and it was like, oh well, that's obvious, you know. So, but you you know, you got to try, you got to try, you got to start somewhere. It's like, okay, well, there's a fridge, and you can order the thing. Yeah, absolutely, that could have happened. And in fact, I think those got built, but people were like, nah, I'm good. I'll just yeah. nah. <laughs> That's I dumb. didn't want a smart fridge. <laughs> no, not really. I just wanted to to be a, to keep my stuff cool. Yeah, uh, which is good. Winding back to theater a little bit. Growing up in a place where there wasn't much live theater, mm-hmm. were you watching things like on PBS, like great performances or, or filmed theater in any way? No, not really. I mean, I you know I watched a lot of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood growing up in Electric Company. Um, and, and I think I, I, I'm not really joking. I mean, I think in some ways if you watch, especially if you watch electric company, did you, you probably, I don't know if you know what electric company is. No, I I don't think that came to Australia. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it was, it was extraordinary. I mean, Sesame street was unbelievable. Sesame street and I are the same age. Um, (laughs) so they, they were literally, they made Sesame street with, with me in mind as a little kid at that time, you know, in the early seventies. And Electric Company was a bunch of th- theater people, actually, as it turns out, doing these just wacky. It was like Sesame Street was probably for kids, let's say two to seven or eight, maybe. And Electric Company was for like eight to ten or maybe seven to nine, like in that area. And it had um, like, um, let's see who was in it. Um, I know for sure that Morgan Freeman was in it. He was Easy Reader. He was oh, his, wow. his character was Easy Reader. And then I think there were a few other, you know, sort of Broadway star, movie star types that were in it. And they did amazing stuff. Um, and it uh, wasn't theater exactly, but, but it was, you know, I mean, you, you, you got the point across. And then, of course, 
rock and roll was more theatrical in those days too. You know, if you ever just mm-hmm. listen to a meatloaf album sometime. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, movies were the the driver of the culture. Rock music and, and, and movies were the driver of the culture. So in a sense, like movies were the, the if you didn't live someplace where there was a lot of theater, movies were theater, you know, and there were so many different ways that you you could, you know, even in a small town, you could rent um, Jim Jarmusch movies or, you know, whatever, whatever kinds of things. And I think that sort of fed the the fed the same impulse in a way, you know. That's really interesting, that little window, like there was quite a lot of theatre on TV in like the 50s and 60s, and then there's yeah. like it goes kind of fallow between the 70s and it picks back up in the late 80s. So it's interesting, that little gap in between, how yeah. the difference in what you were absorbing. Well, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about this. I think a lot of people that, you know, maybe maybe 10 Anybody more than about 10 years younger than me doesn't probably remember a time unless they know it from, you know, like Jen Tepper knows it. Unless you're a student of history, uh, doesn't really know about a a period of time where, you know, Broadway was as good as dead, for example. You know, like it's it's not something or or for that matter, New York City was as good as dead. The first time I went to New York City was in 1987 and I was a freshman in college and it was uh, Times Square was a terrifying and disgusting place. Mm-hmm. where you definitely could conveniently buy crack, you know, from multiple vendors without really seeking it out. But uh, so you didn't want to hang out. You know what I mean? It, was, it really wasn't, you know, um, you know, George Takei actually told me a story once of um, going to the, he was, I can't remember what year, early nineties, probably he was, he was taken to the new Amsterdam theater by Disney and being told that we're, we're going to buy this. We're going to renovate it. And he said, you know, there's water coming through the ceiling and a hole in the ceiling. And he's like, what, why, what, you know? <laughs> so it's stuff. it's, you know, you got to remember stuff goes in cycles like this. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not guaranteed to be the way it's been for the last 20 or 30 years. It definitely goes up and down. And the work of how many people it took to make that change in Times Square, to the, all the all the different projects that had to happen to clean it up and restore the theaters, and yeah, yeah, it was it's such a like decades long project with hundreds of people working behind the scenes to make it all happen. It's yeah, and it's exciting to think about like what, how that can happen now that there are all these people behind the scenes doing work to make theater more accessible on a much wider level, not just on, on that's really um, true on Broadway. That's- it's it's really true, you know. In the first we the, in the first TEDx Broadway um, was 2012, and the first thing that we ever showed at a TEDx Broadway was somebody walking through Times Square in 1992. So 20 years before, we just showed 10 minute raw footage of somebody just walking around with a camera on their shoulder in 1992, and um, we, you know, we kind of posed the thought the thought experiment. If you had asked people in 1992, what's going to happen to crime in, in New York City? Do you think it's going to go up a little, go down a little, go up a lot, go down a lot? You know, what do you think they would have said? And if you had said, hey, how many people think it's going to go down 85% between 1992 and 2012? How many people do you think out of 100 would have raised their hand and said, yeah, I think it's going to go down 85%? Not many, probably, right? Probably not, very not few, many. yeah. <laughs> that's actually what happened, you know, but that's actually yeah. what happened. And and that's the environment that people take for granted. I mean, it's maybe a little tiny bit worse now, but it's nothing like it was, right? And so it, the point of that is to say the way that people think about change is often so wrong. They think that 
Um, they think that like nothing will change at all or that things will change, you know, in a very gradual way, but more or less be continuous with today. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to look very far in any direction of the past to the present and say like, no, that just suddenly changed a lot or it just changed kind of fundamentally from where it was uh, for the better or for the worse sometimes, you know, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a human impulse to kind of think like everything's going to kind of continue to be the way it is now, even though we know that's not true. Yeah. And be very afraid of anything that's new and different. And <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody. Some people, not know, every, some yes. people can't wait, right? Like some people are like, yeah, it's like, yeah. So let's uh, let's go back a little bit. Well, back to come forward. So um, you started Gold Star as mm-hmm. a e-commerce ticketing business, mm-hmm. and then fast forward to 2020, and March happens. Uh, talk, yes. talk that pivot to and <laughs> creating Stella. Yeah. So uh, I think I think anybody in the industry will always remember, you know, the week of March 9th. Uh, that that year um it was just a head spinning you know and actually what's funny about it is i had been thinking about it for a a while like i had been kind of thinking like okay what's going to happen we had a um i think sometime in january i asked the customer service team at gold star to start logging every time we got a question about coronavirus i don't think anyone was saying the word covid at the time um Every time you get it, something, just tally it, and then I'll, and then I'll get a report at the end of the night. And um, you know, for weeks it was none. It was like one one a week kind of thing. Um, even though it was kind of obvious that like something's happening, um, and I was like, well, no, I don't. You know, I, I mean, I don't know what to think about this. Um, and then in along about the middle of February, we were starting to get sort of one a day, you know, steadily. And then two and then four and then eight. And then I was like, oh, I know what this is. This is, a, this is an exponential curve. This is a curve that grows in exactly the same shape as a virus. And, um, of course, within a, a couple of weeks, it was the only thing, the only question, right? So I, I, I think I only – what I had, it's kind of like I had a uh, – it's like if you know – if you're driving in a car and you see like, oh, crap, I'm going to crash into the – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crash into the wall or whatever. Like I had a few seconds – you know, to, to prepare for the fact that, that I, we were in a crash and uh, didn't help much. But, um, you know, the, the really the thing there was um, it was instantly obvious to me once um, once so the, we just lost control of the virus, you know, in, in this country that it was going to which was never not going to be the case, but um, that it wasn't going to be fast. That, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I talk to who would say things like, oh, we'll definitely be back by July, like July. I'm like, I'd say <laughs> I mean, even July. at the beginning, it was like, we'll be back in April. See you in two weeks. Like it was yeah. so it was crazy. <laughs> I, I, I would say to people, like, what makes you think that's going to happen? Like what events are you picturing in your head that lead to we're back in July? Like what could possibly happen short of. Yeah, just a miracle, you know, supernatural miracle. Um, and so, and people are like, I don't know, it just seems like a long time. I'm like, it's not going to happen. So we knew that the, we knew that you, whatever we did, we had to look long-term, you know, it was a long-term problem and long-term, you know, we, what we did was we mapped out scenarios, a sort of optimistic middle and pessimistic scenario 
of when the industry would sort of return. And uh, even our optimistic one was sort of like 2020 was lost. Um, you know, there's no way. Maybe by the end of 2020, there'd be some advanced sales that could be made for 2021. But that was that was our best case scenario. Um, and so, you know, our number one concern was, you know, keep the company together, take care of our people, take care of our partners, uh, meaning like all the venues all of a sudden were in the exact same position we were in, but with less flexibility because they kind of like they're a venue or they're a producer. This is what they do. Um, and so um, we did everything we could just to keep, you know, body and soul together for everybody. We kept everybody on insurance and we, we did a small layoff, but we, uh, but we did larger, you know, furloughs and the executives took big pay cuts and that kind of thing. Um, and, over the course of the first couple of months, we were just dealing with, oh my gosh, just canceling so many shows, just canceling and refunding tickets and, um, you know, trying to convince customers to take credit instead of cash. And that they mostly did, by the way, customers really stepped up and, we, you know, they, they, and they're still to this day using the credits that they, and we gave them bonuses on their money and stuff. Um, and in May of that year, we, we had gone through a, a pretty thorough analysis of like, well, what are our options here? You know? Um, and the, you know, it, it had become evident to me that some people were taking online shows seriously and trying to do them well and trying to do them in a way that was worth people paying for. And they were having success with that. Um, and so we committed to building stellar in May of 2020 and um, what we were trying to build was not a stopgap to get people through the pandemic or something kind of halfway, you know, half done, sort of a, a sketch tape and model glue type of thing, but a real platform, like a true, highly professional platform that would allow people to ticket and stream great live shows, professional people to ticket and stream great live shows. Um, and we had a lot of experience with that, right? I mean, like we, we've for 20 years built products that thousands and thousands of producers and venues use to sell tickets. And so we knew a little bit about how to do that. And so by, by late summer, we were in beta on that by October, we, we technically, we, we unveiled stellar at the finale of, uh, the show at the Geffen called the present, the finale of the present. I don't know if you, with Helder Guimaras, who's great, yeah. great illusionist. And now has a show in South Pasadena, so go see it. And we had, I think, 8,000 people watch that show and had a great time with that. And then in December, we did the uh, Jagged Live concert with Eva and, and Arvin and, and Vivek and that whole team and the cast, which we had 20,000 people watching that. And so, you know, it was kind of uh, it was kind of like on, you know what I mean? Game on. Um, and as uh, 2021 came around, um, you know, it continued. I, I think people started to work on getting back into the venue March or April of 2021 in, in, in serious, you know, like for serious. And um, we went through a process of selling gold star to today ticks in 2021. And then at the end of that process, we split stellar off as an independent company, um, got some money to fund it. And, um, and here we are today. So now we're out there trying to um, help people who see the opportunity in theater, in music, in other performing arts, in really any field where they understand that of all the terrible things that happened as a result of the pandemic in the live entertainment business, 
the the one real upside was the people's eyes were open to the strength and the power of of digital tools of various kinds, not least of which is um, actually having shows that are available for people to watch um, online as opposed to um, only being able to see it in the theater. So that's kind of how we got there. And it was a, it was a long process, you know, of um, building the product and, and, you know, getting some early users and, um, and it's still early, you know, we're very early in this industry, very, very early. And I, I would say most people aren't there yet in terms of complete adoption of the idea, but the di- what's separating them from that, from what's separating a lot of people from that is seeing some really great examples of how this turns into a, a business and a, and a, a process, you know? So mm. that was a lot. I think, I think you, you asked me to go through how we got there. That's how we got there. <laughs> that, no, that's really extraordinary. And I'm curious, were you aware of like Broadway HD or National Theater Live or the Met yeah. Opera Live or anything like that beforehand? Like yeah. how did that factor into your thinking about Stellar? Yeah. Actually, I very much was. In fact, I, I fact, in fact, looking back, I feel like I left myself a trail of breadcrumbs um, over the decade before we did this. Um, I met David Sable, um, who was the creator of NT Live in 2012. He spoke at TEDx Broadway. Um, and I was fascinated by what they were doing, which was a little different because it was theater based or movie theater based, yeah. cinema based, I should say, um, at the time. But, you know, for you know, his his basic outlook on this was this is really simple. We we make this available elsewhere People watch it. We make money from that. And then those people want to come to our theater in person when they get the opportunity. Duh. You know, like, he's like, can I we have- put that on a, on a banner, please? Can we put that in the middle of Times Square? Those exact yeah. words. <laughs> no, it's like, it's like it, you know, we have the data, you know, it, it works. The, the, you know, the, the cannibalization question is a total red herring. Anybody who brings it up, I'm like, well, let's talk it through. But you already know whether you already know it's not true. And I'll tell you how you know this. Because if you could go back in time, this is in the book, you may have read it. If you could go back in time as the commissioner of the NBA and take the games off TV as a way of making your tickets in the arena more valuable, would you do that? And the answer is, of course you wouldn't. That's insane, (laughs) right? That would be a terrible, terrible, terrible business decision. And it's really not that different as a concept. I I love the analogy that you use in the book about – iPhones, and that if Apple took the same model, oh, we we're um, we're going to stop. We've we've sold out of all these iPhones, so we're going to wait till the next one till we till you can buy yeah. some more. And yeah. it's like the same thinking in the theater industry. Like, oh, as, once once the in person tickets sell out, that's it. Wait for the that's next it. show. Yeah. I mean, and it's partly because that's all you got, right? Traditionally, you don't have a choice. I mean, it's it's um, you know the comparison that I that I, I'm not the only one who makes this, but it's just the obvious comparison is the airline industry, right? Like it, the theater, really all of live entertainment is a lot like the airline business, which is that if I get on a plane and fly to San Francisco, it costs basically the same to fly that plane. You know, Southwest air flies from Burbank to San Francisco. It costs about the same, whether it's full or there's just me on that plane, you know, um, when the door closes and the plane goes out onto the runway, it's done. Right. Um, And live entertainment largely functions the same way. And what's so terrible about that is you've got for I don't want to go too hardcore into the economics talk, but their fixed costs are really high. Right. Like just, you know, to decide to do a show is very expensive. 
every customer that you add is very cheap, right? It really doesn't cost anything to have another customer come in, not really. And so the fixed costs are high. And that means that if you don't operate above a certain limit, you're just dying. It's just a, it's just a, you know, you're always have that sort of Damocles over your head of, we have to get this plane as full as possible. We have to get this plane as full as possible. And that's fine, except that it's hard, right? It's hard and it's high risk. And what it leads to is an industry where you basically have two different kinds of outcomes. You can lose big or you can win small, hmm. which is not great, right? Like yeah. you'd rather have it be the other way where you, you your two trades are lose small or win big, right? And the only way that you really win big in the live entertainment business is to win big again and again and, or win, win small again and again and again and again and again and again and again, right? So Hamilton's an example of, uh, a business model that wins small every night, you know, and it adds up. Right. But, but that's, but that's hard, you know, and, and that's why, you know, that's why the business model is a little out of whack. When you use the leverage of being able to build an audience all over the world, you can, you can actually basically just destroy those dynamics and you, you set it up to where if you, you, you just have a much higher likelihood of being able to win in any given time, right? So if you care about the show or the organization or the cause, or if you care about access, or if you care about people just being able to enjoy uh, what it is that you're doing, just a big step in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned the the red herring idea of um, cannibalization. Yeah. And some of the other fears, the other fears that you mentioned in the book are that it's not the same as in person, doesn't True. matter. True. And uh, it's expensive to film. But some of the other questions I had were, what is your sense of what the unions, what their role is in either preventing or aiding filming theater and also how we address bootlegging? Uh, well, let's start with the unions. I think that the, you know, you've got a very different situation with the unions in different places. And by far the worst is in New York. <laughs> um, so, Right now, I would say, and I, I'm not an expert on this, but I have been looking at it pretty closely over the last few months. Right now, there's some work to do in making those contracts make sense because the way they work is there's too much of a, um, a kind of upfront payout that has to go to unions. It basically makes the um, makes some, doing something on Broadway not really viable right now. Now, bear in mind, you know, there's a lot of people that I hear who have this instinct that it's expensive to, or it's prohibitively expensive to do a show on Broadway, you know, online and make it available. That's true, but only because of the union buyouts at this point. Otherwise you can do a very good, uh, a very good production and marketing budget and everything else with, with an expectation that you could make money in, up to and including like lots of money. Um, and what's <laughs> so bad about that, and I'm not, I'm not really knocking the unions here because what I would say is those contracts were written for a different world, right? So what I, my expectation of what's going to happen is uh, at some point over the, I, I don't think it'll take more than, you know, I don't know, a year. There'll be some ways of making it, you know, reorganizing it so that everyone can win. So right now, like if, if I say to you, like, hey, if you want me to do this, you have to give me $2 million, you're going to say, no, I'm not going to do it. So I get nothing, right? It's not like, it's not like everyone's winning out of this. It's literally currently a lose-lose because n neither the unions nor the producers nor the customers nor anybody else are winning from this because it's just not, it's, and, and bear in mind, again, this is only in New York. Um, 
over time, I mean, everyone needs to win from this, right? Like what I'm talking about is the greatest opportunity windfall that theater has maybe ever had, right? So if that's the case, then everybody needs to win, including the people like the unions who make these things happen, right? So it, it just needs to be reconfigured. And, and But let me add that New York, let's say there's some world in which that doesn't get organized or that doesn't get dealt with. You could picture a world in 10 or 20 years from now where New York is a second tier theater city um, because the people who produce in, let's say, London or Los Angeles, where it happens to be a lot of, uh, turns out there's a lot of actors, turns out there's a lot of writers, turns out there's a lot of people who know how to operate a camera, turns out there's a lot of people who know how to market you know, entertainment in both of those cities. If you could do a production here and you know do this well on the in-person stuff and then stack you know, the digital side, 10 times the size of that top of that. You could do that in Los Angeles or you could do that in London, but not in New York. Over time, it's just going to bleed away the, the prestige and the power of New York theater, which is why I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I do think it's an opportunity for um, other cities, especially London and Los Angeles, but I don't think New York's going to allow that to occur. You know what I mean? So that's my take on it. I, I think it's just an artifact of the past and, you know, nobody's benefiting from it. So ultimately, I think we'll solve that problem. I, that's something I love about filmed theater, obviously, is the, the way it's kind of democratizing uh, the status of, of places. Like you, you don't ha- just have Broadway on camera, you have LA and Manila and Sydney and, you know, um, sure. Um, Seoul, like there's there's places all around the world, regional companies and small independent companies that are putting work online, and it makes it so much more accessible on a general level than it's not just about Broadway or the West End. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely and in line with the union negotiation stuff, I'm curious. I know that Stellar is a pay per view model that you pay per show. That's one of the um, ways. That's one of the ways you can use it. Hmm. What what's your sense of how um, either pay per view or subscription models uh, either both ways for the audience like what what do audiences want do they prefer mm-hmm. subscription or pay per view or and what what benefits the artist the most? Uh, I think it really depends. And so on Stellar, you can do pay per view, you can do a subscription, you can do a membership, you can do free. Um, there's a bunch of different models that you can do. Um, and um, I mean, I think there's some really innovative possible business models here um musicians could and are i mean you know melissa etheridge are you familiar with melissa yeah. Etheridge? oh yeah <laughs> not on stellar but melissa if you're listening please come do this in stellar because you whatever you do you think <laughs> is not as good as ours but um what what i love about what she did over the, the pandemic was that she couldn't tour so she created a membership where basically people her fans and she has a lot of passionate fans um pay to have access to the shows that she creates in her studio. So she's a high quality stream. I think it's a couple times a month and people pay a fixed amount month after month after month. And so whether Melissa tours or not, or records or not, she's got a kind of, kind of what's the word I'm looking ballast, right? She's got this business model that works brilliantly for her. It works brilliantly for the people who are her fans because they know that they're not just getting access to the content she's creating, but they're actually supporting her in a very direct way they get a very strong sense of being connected to her and they have access, you know, in a sort of special way. 
And I think it's just the greatest thing. If I were a musician with a following, this is what I would do. I, I would absolutely, you know, if I had like enough people that I could get, I'm not any of those things, but if I, if I, if I could give advice to an artist that has any kind of following, it would be build a member, build a membership that pays to watch you perform, you know, in an, in an, a hybrid online setting, you know, mm-hmm. um, because you just can't go wrong with it. There's just no world in which that doesn't work if you plan to keep performing for money. You know, one concept that I wish someone would do is, um, you know, if you think about plays on Broadway, um, plays on Broadway are actually are obviously harder to sell. They're cheaper to make, but they're harder to sell. And they're pretty much impossible to tour as, as such, right? Um, you know, one model that I would strongly, I think is a goldmine for somebody to do is, you know, if you do plays on Broadway, especially if you do more than one, you know, let's say you do three or four a year, you know, some people do, um, build a subscription base for those and make, you know, two weeks of the run, the subscription window. And so you've got somebody who's subscribing to four or five or whatever number, three or four plays a year on Broadway that they join in the stream of their choice, but they pay you just like a subscriber audience. There's your tour. You know, this, this is, this, there's your tour. You know, you, you just got the economic benefits of a nationwide tour or at least something like that without driving a bunch of props and people around the country, you know, um, at least when it comes to plays, that's something that you just don't, I mean, th- that's just an opportunity that currently is really, really hard. It's hard to match that opportunity currently. And, and by not doing it, what are you doing? What, I mean, so let's say you don't do that, right? What's been achieved by not doing that? You know, what's the, yeah. what's the good, <laughs> what's the good, what's the upside of not doing that? You know, yeah. I, there's no good from it. You know, you've sold less tickets, less people are aware of your show. Like there are so many reasons that it's sort of, it, it doesn't make sense. And what I love is I'm starting to see theaters mm-hmm. that have a digital uh, subscription that you can pay monthly. So it's really accessible cost wise because you don't have to pay for a year. You can pay monthly or pay yeah. per show. And, uh, and you can also tie it into your in-person ticket. So if you yeah. buy an in-person ticket, you automatically get access to digital. Yeah. Like what a better way than to promote your shows than by making it accessible in that way. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a brainer. It's a bra- I just said it was a no-brainer, but it is a brainer because <laughs> you have to figure out exactly how that works for you. You know, um, you have to figure out what the model is for you. But I think some people are overthinking it and they're being too precious about it. Like it, it's, it's, not hard in this day and age to get you take, I mean, really you could do it with less, but if you put $20,000 of hardware into a venue, um, you would have a good enough multicam setup to where for a relatively, you know, very low number of labor dollars per show, you could be delivering a high quality video product for the next eight years, anytime you wanted to. And it's just a, it, it, that that's just that that's where people get too precious about it. Suddenly they want to be, you know, Spielberg or something like that. No, you know what I mean? Like that's that's not what this is. Right. This is a different medium. You're not making a movie. You can, but you don't have to. Right. You, you don't have to go make a multimillion dollar movie and you're not pointing a, a you know, center lock camera at the stage and putting it on Zoom. Those are not the alternatives. Right. There, yeah. There's a lot of ways to deliver great live shows with maybe three or four relatively inexpensive, but highly capable cameras that you set up, you get a switching board, you get somebody with a, that's sort of the director 
by the way, there's a lot of 30 year olds who know how to do this, you know, because they do it on Twitch every night. You know what I mean? It's not that complicated. You know, mm. there's a lot of artistic choices and business choices to be made. Make them go through and make them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is not that hard. Um, it's just a thing. And it opens up a world of possibilities. I have so many questions. Okay. Uh Going back to very briefly, I want to touch on bootlegs. So people put their content online in some way. And I, I know a lot of people are very scared of their work being stolen or people um, copying the the, um, the video and, and keeping it for themselves. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't hear this one much anymore um, because I think like the horse is out of the barn on every form of content. when it comes. If you think that... Um, you know, like a, a shoulder mounted or a, a, you know, button hook mounted grab of a whatever. I, I guess you're talking about somebody ripping, ripping it from the screen. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I understand the emotional reaction to that. You feel like you've been, you know, violated or whatever. But what's the right way to put this? The first thing I would say is if someone is bootlegging your show, it's a compliment. <laughs> because it means someone cares. The biggest problem that theater has, and I'm serious, the biggest problem that theater has is not enough people care mm. about any of it. Hmm. And that's something that theater people really need to step out of the bubble and understand sometimes is the biggest problem is there's all, there's all these people that are interested in theater. And then there's all these other people that could be interested in theater, but they don't even know what's going on. They don't even know it exists, you know? So that, so there's sort of primary, here's how I would put it. There's sort of primary and, or what is it? First order and second order problems, right? The, there is a second order problem of somebody stole my thing and I, I should have gotten paid for that, but I didn't. But the first order problem is no one cares, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or very few people care that should. Um, I'm not saying this is harmless. I'm saying, so much in energy, you know, sometimes goes into that and not enough goes into like, how do we, if we, let's say, let's say we legitimately get uh, uh, a thousand people watching and paying for a stream. Right. Um, and we get 15, 20 people watching a bootleg, which will degrade in quality, by the way, it won't be perfect. And the, and by the way, all the apparatus that outside the, the rectangle that has the content on it is crappy. Right. Like everything else about the experience is terrible. Right. <laughs> Compared to what you get if you use a, a service like Stellar, where it is a beautiful experience of watching the show. Right. You're, com you're communicating with other people. It's live. It's, it's all this good stuff. Right. You're watching a, a you know, you're watching something crummy, you know, after the fact. Um, but let's say that happens and, and 15 or 20 people watch that. Well, you still won. Right. Like it, you, you've, you've, you've still got this massive, massive win. Um, and that comes like anything, right? Like it's like, it's like the yin and the yang, the white, the white side has a black dot in it and the black side has a white <laughs> dot in it, right? There's, there's a little bit, that's just being realistic about, about life, but I don't actually think it's a big problem because the question is, did you, did you do better with the show, right? By whatever you want to define that, did more people see it? Did you make more money? Did what? And if the answer is like, yes, in a strong way, it's kind of, you know, I mean, like literally think about Hollywood. Right. There's bootlegging of Hollywood stuff. Um, 
What are you gonna? It hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a it's a sign that someone cares enough, right? The the problem is like why why wouldn't people bootleg more? If, because maybe because they just don't care enough or they don't know, right? Like this is the thing that 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 theater artists should be thinking about more. It's like you know, what if we assume that everyone is interested in theater just for the sake of argument, rather than thinking like we've got this audience and like let's make it a little bit bigger, you know? Like what if we made it. <laughs> 8% bigger, you know, wouldn't that be great? It's like, what if we start with an assumption that like everyone could like theater or, or maybe they won't, but let's assume for the moment that, that they would, um, or at least a lot of people, right. Think that way. And you won't worry as much about the bootleg because it doesn't damage what you're doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It just doesn't damage what you're doing. Um, no, I don't know of anybody who has done a stream that were, whose goal was to generate revenue where there were tons of people watching for free because of bootlegs and nobody watching for pay. And they're like, damn it. I did this whole thing and all these people wanted to watch it, but they didn't pay because they bootlegged it. I don't think that's ever happened. What, what I will say is that when people bootleg something, it's a result of a whole bunch of people paying for it and watching it. That's, that's why they do that. Right? So messages, you win, Right. You win. If you, if, you, if you get to that point, you have won the game. And now you're just trying to figure out how to clean up the bootlegging problem that you've got. Right. Yeah. But and people love your work and be honored by that. But like we can. And there are ways that we, we have the technology to. You there's know, ways to deal with it. And code things and, and whatnot. But yeah, yeah it's it's a second. I, order. I like that, that flip of yeah. making it. This is a great thing. It is. It's a, it's a sign that someone cares. And it's a sign that I mean, like, you know, people don't steal things that aren't worth stealing. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so with, with something like this, um, you, you know, it's it's never going to like I said, I want to just repeat this. I have no examples of people who had a bunch of viewers and the vast majority were people who stole it and watched bootleg. There's no examples of that. What I ha- what I have seen is examples of people with a lot of paying viewers who had some bootleg viewers as well. Because they do that because there's value being generated. That's the, that's the reality. So I, I think it's just so far down the stack in terms of what people should be concerned about. Oh my God. Especially now, you know, especially now in the, in the world of live entertainment, this is not your top concern. You know, this is not your top concern. Um, but, and also there's just big opportunities, you know? So I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, I get a little crazy on, on this subject, but it, I know people, it, it's a very natural question to ask. And I'm not, you know, making fun of people who have the question or anything like that. But I am saying, like, remember what you're trying to do. Remember what the goal is. The goal is not to punish the wicked. The goal is to do a great show and, you know, pr- presumably make money from it or get a big audience or whatever you want to do. Right. The goal is not like achieving justice against the against, you know, content thieves. You can do that later, yeah. but that's not the, that's not number one, right? Yeah. So. Oh, that's so important. I love that perspective. Um, I want to get a little bit technical. You talked about theaters putting cameras in their venues to yeah. film work and capture work. When is it? When is an online entertainment event, especially of live theater, like filming mm-hmm. live theater? Yeah. When does it become? When is it theater versus TV versus film? Well, like, what are the dividing lines between those things? Yeah. So like, you know, we filmed Hamilton and 
I mean, there's different models we can use. Like there's live streams where it's like happening in the moment. We watch yeah. it real time, like Jagged Little Pill. Yeah. Or there's Hamilton, which was filmed kind of like a movie. There was an audience and then they did, um, you know, backup shots and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and then there's online events that are like, um, what did you call them in the book? The um, online first hybrid. online first uh, hybrid. The um, where it's like an exclusive in person kind of like um, what was the other one that was on Stella that I loved? Um, Cruel Intentions. Oh yeah, that was, that was so fabulous. That was, that oh, that was, was so, so great. Yeah. So like we have all these different kinds of like theatrical events that are now being on TV or on in the internet. When when is it not like why is Cruel Intentions not studio TV versus theater? Well, for one thing, people watched it while it was happening, so that was live when it happened. Um, the other thing is that the people in the um, in the Bourbon Room, which is where the show happened, um, were having a perfectly wonderful theater experience, a lot you know, at, in real time, along with everybody else. But the, what makes it uh, what makes it a hybrid show really was that the people watching it on Stellar we're seeing the same show at the same time, but in a different way, you know, because they were seeing it through the lens of a camera rather than with their human eyes. Right. So a great example. I mean, I know that we're not, there's no video for this, right? It's just audio. Yeah, <laughs> you just can't audio. see this. I'm going to show it to Lisa. There's a, there's a point in that show where there's a guy holding the, cause the book is a big part of the show, right? The burn book or the slam book or whatever they call it. Yeah. So there's somebody who's looking at like a book and he's like, and I think this person's a jerk and blah, blah, blah. And the, from the point of view of the in-person audience, they're holding the book in front. The character is holding the book like this, like holding it up. But from the point of view of the online audience, the camera goes over the shoulder and they're looking into the book. Yeah. Right. And I just thought like that was one of the most brilliant little distinctions, you know, to, to say like, here's something you can do in this medium that brings a whole new kind of, and I talked about this in the book, but like a whole new kind of uh, access to something that you couldn't otherwise do. Right. So I think that show was a great example of a fully realized true hybrid theatrical event because it was live in both in person and online. And the people who were in the theater were having a, a, an experience that was optimized to their to what they were having. Right. The in-person experience. And it was optimized to the experience type that the online viewer was having too. And so that's where this new medium, that's where this kind of, you see there's this new medium that emerges, right? Um, where there truly is a new medium that's possible. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a way to think about it, right? Like what, what, what are you doing? Like if you do a stop start uh, capture of a play, that's probably not, that's, probably not theater you know what i mean it's theater and the, and it's a theater show but it's it's kind of a different thing you're you're filming it's it's film theater right like it's a different thing right yeah it's to be completely consumed you know by a by a, a, a viewer later right once yeah. it's been edited together um and so that ha that's its own sort of thing um and i think even if you do what i call the kind of ride-along hybrid event which is that there's a thing happening and we're going to put cameras in the room and we're going to shoot it. You can do so much that's just super exciting, right? Like, for example, if you're sitting in the theater, you know, you can't do zoom-ins. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know what I mean? There's so many things you can't do, right? Like, uh, depending on where you're sitting in the theater, you're going to see something different. And that's part of what's great about it in person is that, you know, it's it's really happening in front of your eyes. But you can add value in the ways that 
you know, TV and film can add value while still being in the midst of a live event. So I think people should think of it as, first of all, there's, you know, over and over again, we blend, we blur the lines between genres, you know, and creatively, um, you know, I'm trying to think of an example, but I mean, like late night TV talk shows are both live and, you know, and for, for viewing outside the room, right. It's a live event, but it's also, you know, there's no reason to be fixated on genre. I don't think, but what I would say is whatever you're doing, you have to speak to, to that, that production. What is appropriate to that production? Um, do you remember, did you read the, the part in the book about the, I love Lucy? Um, yes. Yeah. The chocolate factory. The chocolate factory. <laughs> now, are you familiar with the chocolate factory scene? From, it's from so that funny. Tra- yes. It's so funny, right? <laughs> and the, and the example there, and that was in 1952. So TV really was very, very new, you know, and part of the reason that Lucy and Desi did so well was because they thought in the language of television, even though they had been radio stars, you know, and there were radio stars that, that could make the leap and there were radio stars that could not make the leap. Um, and that scene where Lucy and um, Ethel are trying to get the chocolate through, which is hilarious. There's no way you could do that scene on the radio. You know what I mean? Like, it just not. wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so they were, even though it was only, I think, two years after they moved from radio to TV, they were already thinking in terms of TV rather than thinking in terms of radio on TV. And I think that's exactly the same mandate now, you know, mm. um, and cruel intentions was actually a brilliant example of this, an absolutely brilliant example of um, thinking in terms of a true hybrid event where, the, where you're having a, a great theater experience if you were in the room and you were having a great live theater experience if you were watching on stellar. And I think that social media, like uh, like TikTok and Facebook Live, like all of those kinds of things, are starting to creep into that too. Like I remember an American in Paris when it was still on Broadway mm-hmm. did this Facebook Live event, um, like at the end of Act One and into intermission, and mm-hmm. it was really fun because they took us behind the scene. Like we went backstage mm-hmm. and they showed us costume changes and like you know, uh, I think it was uh, Leslie and Cope, like you know, led the led the live stream and, and talked through the process of being in the show. And it was so thrilling as an audience member at home to be able to go behind the scenes like that. And I think the more that live theater captures can incorporate that kind of thing, give us extra than what we could normally do when we walk into, you know, the theater, that's, that's where the excitement is. It's absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. I think uh, people have tended to underestimate the importance of live when it comes to streaming. And that's a little bit because they're my, this is my slightly harsh way of saying it. Stop being so precious about the editing. You know what I mean? Like that's not that. I mean, there's a, it's a place for that. And I certainly think that, you know, there's so many different ways to succeed, but one of the things is like, it's not about the nth level of polish on the show. If you can capture the feeling of something happening now, you're there now you're, you know, and we do that on stellar through the interface that the person that the, that the viewer comes into and things like chat and, and virtual clapping and just all the different ways in which that all happens. And also just knowing it's happening now, right? If you, if you give that up so you can, you know, put some spit and polish on the editing, you're really giving something significant up. Um, and it's hard for people to, to really grok that unless they, 
join one or two of these real live events that where you can feel the presence of other people. Um, and then once you do, you're like, oh, that was cool. Like for going back to the jagged thing as an example, people came into that what they call what we call the the um, the stream lobby an hour before the show started, hmm. and they were talking to each other. You know, in addition to watching the the pre show content, they were talking to each other, and then the show ended. And people were in the in the chat talking to each other for an hour after the show ended. Mm. So if you just had a VOD of that show, you push play and it's like, hey, here's the first song. Blah, blah, blah. You don't get any of that. Right. You don't get any of that. And, you know, that I know different people look at that differently and stuff like that. And different shows um, see that differently. But um, that's part of being live, you know, part of knowing that it's happening. I, I sit here at my desk in Pasadena. And I watch shows at um, Caveat in New York. Do you know Caveat? So mm-hmm. Caveat's on Stellar. They do most of the shows are live on Stellar. And so a lot of afternoons, like I get to about four or five o'clock and seven or eight o'clock there. And I'll just like watch whatever's on ca- on stage at Caveat, you know. And I know it's happening yeah. right now, you know, on, down, down there in, in the East Village. And I just it's so much fun to watch what's actually happening, you know. And they interact with the audience. They interact with the online audience in a really clever way and. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So that's But I, I will say I want to champion like doing those live events and then making it like Cruel Intentions was available and Jagged too were yeah. available after the event so that if you missed it or you wanted to rewatch it or you were in a different time zone, you could catch up on it. But you, st- I think you still – what's so great about capturing live events is that you – I think the camera is able to capture some of that energy, that exchange of energy between the in-person audience and the, um, or the virtual audience even, and the performers. And there's, that is something that can translate in a later viewing. I agree. And actually one of the, one of the most common pieces of advice that I find myself giving to people who are producing online events is point one camera at the audience, at least, Mm -hmm. and switch to it sometimes, you know, because it, you just go like, oh my god! You know what I mean? Like it just brings it to life in a way that that that's very interesting. You don't realize it necessarily, but once you start, oh yeah, you know, there's people there watching it and enjoying it. You know, there's some really fun uh, like historical stuff of when people were trying to start capture like Broadway shows, um, where they like. Like Sunday in the Park, for example, when they mm-hmm. filmed it, they instructed the audience to stay quiet and not react because they didn't want that to be caught on camera. And like you feel it and it's like yeah. a kind of, I mean, it's a great capture, but it's, you you feel that kind of deadness in the audience. Yeah. Whereas something like MTV, like Legally Blonde, where like the audience was absolutely encouraged to dress up and and be loud and, you know, be excited about the show. There's there's something different in the energy there. No, no question about it. I, I think, uh, you know, again, it's like, if you tell the audience to be quiet, it's because you think you're making a movie. You're not making yeah. a movie. You're, you know what I mean? You're, you're filming a live event. Right? If you want to make a movie, make a movie. You know, um, <laughs> it's that you're not doing radio. You're doing TV. Stop it. You know. Um, so yeah, but I think you have to. You know, you have to get your head around that. You know, it takes time. Yeah. I know we are, we're getting a little over time here, but I want to touch on one more thing from sure. the book and then I have my round of favorite questions. Okay. Uh, but you, t- you mentioned in the book the success of the, um, the group BTS in Korea, yeah. the K-pop group, selling like over 900,000 tickets for one event in October 2020 and creating the revenue and audience equivalent in 90 minutes, what they would have done in a you know, year-long yeah. tour or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, what is your sense of how this is all playing out overseas, uh, outside of the U.S.? Yeah, so th- the success of, of BTS and other um, K-pop bands online has just continued and grown. Um, I like to think they're living in our future a little bit. Um, but essentially, with when it comes to K-pop, at this point, um, the model has really inverted in the way that I expect that it's going to invert everywhere, which is that the revenue and audience of the online part is just immense compared to the revenue and audience of the in-person part. The in-person thing is very important because we're not talking about chucking out the in-person thing and just doing, you know, studio shoots or something. We're talking about events that you can participate in a couple of different ways. Right. Um, There was a BTS. They had a, they did three shows over a weekend, not too long ago, maybe a month or a month and a half. And, um, you know, they, the total gross for the whole weekend was 35 million. Um, and, and more than 30 million of that was online. So you've got, you know, you've got this inversion where the online revenue is six or seven to one times the size of the in-person revenue. And they did very well on the in-person revenue, right? Like they sold out three times 15,000 cap. Uh, venues at, at a good solid, I don't know, $150 a ticket or whatever. But still in all, that's four or five million bucks compared to 30 or so million bucks in the in the online. And so you've just got this thing where you start to think about that and you ask yourself why that is. And it doesn't take long to discover that it's because there's so many more people who are interested and available to watch something without having to travel to one specific place in time, then there are people who can show up in one place in time and you just go, duh. No, <laughs> it's just one of these things where you go like, yeah, the whole entertainment industry is predicated on this idea, right? It's it, yeah. it just, it just the whole idea is like, what if we could, what if, you know, Netflix business plan was, we got these great shows that we could bring together. Let's try to get a bunch of people into rooms to watch these shows and pay us for it. Or we could make it so that anybody could watch these anywhere. Where do you think we'll do better? And what's so great about what's possible for the live business is that nobody nobody knows how to make an experience like live event people, whether it's theater or concert promoters or whatever. They know how to make this special peak experience, right? If you could combine that ability with the ability to actually open that up to the broader world, you've got a dynamite combination instead of you, instead of where it is now, where it's a pretty rickety business model, you know, a pretty challenging business model that really sort of, from a financial point of view, chews people up and spits them out. Um, and it's only because there are people with enough money to where if they lose it, they don't mind, does Broadway yep. function? And that's the truth. Right. And it creates an inequitable, uh, very um, destroy- destructive um, kind of industry. It can do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think another way of thinking of it is it's very good that somebody's there to set their money on fire. You know, <laughs> it's good that somebody's willing to do that. You know what I mean? Otherwise, yeah. I, you know, so but and my point is not that that's bad. Obviously, it is what it is. Right. Like it, it's we theater has been the same way for a long. Here's a funny thing that's, that happened one time. Somebody, somebody was kind of challenging me on um, m- on online events making money, which, of course, 
they can make tons of money. Ask BTS, get a little pill, ask whoever. But someone's saying, well, you know, when's it, you know, how long is it going to take before, you know, people can make money on online events? Uh, I said, well, you know, the industry's a year old or whatever, you know, so, you know, I think to get people really rolling with business models that reliably produce, you know, great profits, that might take another year or two. And I said, here's my question for you. You know, in-person theater has been around for a couple thousand years. When's that going to make money? When are we, when are we going to get to the point where that makes money? Because it's been a couple thousand years and uh, it's still pretty dicey, you know? (laughs) That is hysterical and so true. true. (laughs) Wow. You know, and that's not really the reason to do it, as we all know, but it wouldn't be terrible if it was a little easier you know, to make great theater, would it? I mean, that wouldn't be so bad, I think, you know. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that is, that's a perfect note to end on. Um, I have one more section. It's I called might, My I Favorite get, Things. I might get some hate mail for that one, but you never know. Let's see. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so this section is called My Favorite Things. These are a few of my favorite things. You don't need to think about your answers too much. Whatever comes to mind is great. I'm, I'm to start off with. I'm scared. Of <laughs> what is your favorite musical? My favorite musical. Um, my favorite musical. My favorite musical is. Um, I think my favorite musical is Cabaret. It's just got so much in it. I love it. Do you have a particular version that you enjoy? Uh. I I love the one that I, I like the one that they did the the one that Alan Cumming was in in various forms you know that that was great I thought that was just serious enough you know I mean it's very serious obviously but it was just it had that sort of a sort of wicked edge to it that was cool like I you know cer- certainly the newer ones rather than the older ones that had to blunt some of the the more uh, serious points that needed to be made in the sh- in the show Do you have a favorite filmed live musical you have a favorite film, live musical. I haven't seen enough to have a, a wide uh, uh, view of these. But are you talking about a stage thing or an actual musical that was turned into a movie? A stage show that has been filmed to be put on screen. Um, well, I mean, I think this is a little bit of an unfair category because, you know, Hamilton got everything it needed to do that in an extraordinarily good way. So that's not fair because the, the, that budget was, it almost belongs in a different category, but it, that was done so beautifully that um, it's hard between that and how good the show is, it's, it's hard not to root for that one, but or not to choose that one. It, like I said, a <laughs> little bit unfair. We touched on this a bit uh, before. So a filmed live musical, like a, a filmed stage show, mm-hmm. um, it's not exactly a movie. It's not exactly TV. What should we call it? Wait, what? What is this again? Say, say that again. So if, if, a, like if we're filming Hamilton yeah. and it's not quite a film, it's not quite theater, yeah. what should we call it? Is it is it being edited later, uh, or is it being be. or is it being showed live? Either, either. Okay. Both. Yeah. If it's being, you know, if it's being showed live and filmed for an online audience, so this is the cruel intentions case. This is the cruel intentions use case. For me, that is hybrid theater or a hybrid event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like, and I love what you said earlier that this is, it's just a new medium. It's a new medium. Yeah. It's, we're still discovering what it is. Yeah. Uh, what stage musicals do you wish had been filmed for Ooh. like live? You mean like his, what productions do I wish had been filmed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it, hmm, 
that's a great question. And I'm not like a, I'm not like one of these people who can go chapter and verse on who, like Jen Tepper could say, when name a date in the theater. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. Um, I, I'll tell you, there are some things that I have seen. This is a, not a direct answer to your question. There are some thing, things that I've seen that um, I remember very vividly feeling like when this is gone, it's gone forever. You know, it is very sense, this very strong sense of like, it's part of the beauty of it, but the ephemeral nature of a thing. And I'll tell you about this. This, this actually wouldn't have been a great example because it was too immersive. <laughs> there, there was this show in Los Angeles about 15 years ago called Alma. And it was this crazy immersive show about um, Alma Mahler, who was married to um, Mahler. And she was married to, she married to all these famous, the three different famous you know men. And they did it in the Los Angeles theater, which is this, was this tumble down, old movie palace and you there were three almas in the cast and they walked all over the venue and the things just happened you know and uh and i went to it i think four or five times and uh every time it was completely different it was sort of sleep no more before sleep no more um with the exception that like at one point i got on a bus and the bus drove away so we were driving around the city on a bus in this show um and uh brave in la traffic <laughs> yeah, yeah and and uh and we ate dinner in the middle of it at a funeral in the middle of it and i and our, I, this wouldn't have been a great example because of the way the, the show was but um it um i remember thinking like this is going to be gone like this will just be like a memory for a few thousand people you know what i mean and um and that's part of it i guess i guess that's part in a way it's the Sort of like the the cherry blossoms in Japan or something, you know, they're here and they're gone. But on the other hand, I felt a real loss about that. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it's definitely the case. I'll tell you, actually, I'll I'll give you an example of something that I wish that um, I'm on the board of the Pasadena Playhouse, which is through that wall, basically the wall behind me on the other, just like a hundred feet away, Playhouse. Um, I wish that there was some record of our uh, our version of Ragtime from 2019. That was amazing. Mm. Um, yeah, I wish there was. I wish there was a good a good shot of that. That was a great show. Oh yes, please. Yeah. What I would give. <laughs> Such a good show. What would you like to see filmed in the future? Well, if by filmed you mean you know made available live and then made available as a VOD, my answer is everything. Like it's just <laughs> like this should be a standard operating procedure for anybody who's serious. I'll let me add this. This is another thing where I might get some hate mail. But if anybody, if you hear anybody in this space talk about access or if they've spent some of their life talking about access and then they're lukewarm or negative on digital, you know that that person was never serious about access. And because like there's never been an access tool like digital in all its different forms. And if you and if you don't see that, I don't know what you mean by access. Maybe you I don't know what you mean by access. Like it's obviously if you think that, you know, whether it's getting access to the material or giving people a a kind of runway or pathway into being an attendee of live theater, the best thing you could possibly do if you can't get every single person to a theater is give them the content that gets that gets builds that desire. Right. You know, again, I go back to the sports analogy where if I talk to you, even if you're not a sports fan, I can easily explain to you that if you 
what do you think is the effect of being able to watch basketball on TV? Do you think it makes kids more or less interested in playing basketball, watching basketball, buying basketball merchandise, you know, whatever, whatever part of it you want? Like, what is the impact of that? If you think that it's that it makes people want basketball less, I would love to hear your your logic on that, because it just doesn't make any sense. You know, there there are tens of millions of fans of of basketball in China, in, you know, Korea, in Africa, in Europe, whatever, that will never see a game in person, in person, never see a game in person. And it doesn't matter because if they don't, if they have ways of being a fan, being a participant, being a, a, a customer, being a, you know, supporter, whatever it is, you got to give them more ways. In, in right now in theater, we basically give people one way of being a customer and a fan and a supporter, which is buy a ticket and come into the venue at a, at a given time. And place. Um, yeah. That's it. So no wonder there's challenges in audience development because it's really, really hard. It's a product that's very hard to buy. And there's so many other beneficial aspects to it that, it, you know, I think people know the truth about this. I just think, it, you know, people will get comfortable in, in their own time and in their own way. But, you know, part of my job is to help coax them in that direction. That's a perfect note to end on. And for an amazing summary of everything that we've talked about today with much more beyond that, uh, please take a look at Beyond the Back Row. I'll have links in the show notes. It is I, I truly think it should be required reading for every theater person in <laughs> awesome. the, on the planet. Excellent. All right. <laughs> Final question. Where can we find you online? Oh, uh, uh, anywhere really. Um, if you're interested <laughs> in, in doing a show on Stellar, go to workwithstellar.com. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter a little bit. I, I don't do that much on Twitter, but t- uh, gold star Jim is my handle there. Still gold star Jim. Um, and <laughs> other than that, I have a medium, um, I have uh, I put things on Medium about this subject uh, once or twice a month, so that content comes out there. And uh, I don't know, I'm easy to find. Brilliant! Thank you so much for your time, Jim. This Thank has you, been a truly wonderful discussion. Right. Awesome! Thanks. The filmed live musicals podcast is created and edited by your host Louisa Lyons. With thanks to our wonderful patrons, Josh Brandon, Geraldine Brewer, Belinda Broido, Elliot Charles, Gillian Dos Santos, Rachel Esteban, Mercedes Esteban Lyons, David Jones, James T. Lane, Heather Madrone, Wendy Markhart, Alison Matthews, Al Monaco, David Negrin, Amy Penn, Gerald Piper, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, Joe Tillotson, Beck Twist, and Tyson von Helsing for financially supporting the site. FilmLiveMusicals.com is the most comprehensive list of film stage musicals. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you would like early access to this very podcast, early access to site content, the full weekly newsletter with info on upcoming streams, and exclusive access to the streaming calendar, become a Filmed Live Musicals patron for as little as $3 a month. Visit FilmedLiveMusicals.com to learn more. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on your podcast app. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks for listening.